This episode of Weekly Sauce is brought to you by Chetty's Hot Sauce. Visit Chetty'sHotSauce.ca and use Hot Sauce 25 for 25% off on all your, uh, the, basically the entire website. You want to buy the entire website? You go there, Hot Sauce 25 for 25% off. Uh, my name is Terry Tam. This is Weekly Sauce episode uh, 18. I'm joined by my co-host Alex, the intern Corleone. And we're happy to have uh, Mitch Brown of EliteProspects.com. Uh, sorry about that. And uh, we're going to talk some hockey. I mean, we've talked. He's been the topic of choice for the last couple of weeks for Alex and I. Uh, so we're happy to have Mitch Brown on. Mitch, how's it going, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're good, man. We're good. Like I said, we're happy to have you on. Uh, I think Alex and I, Alex has been talking about you forever. Uh, yeah. I'm aware of you on Twitter. So And um, it's weird. I looked for you today and I saw that I, I just followed you, but I thought I was following. I guess I probably get all your news from Alex or whoever else shares your stuff. Yeah, it's, it's all good. I could always use the extra followers, you know, I'm running pretty <laughs> low on them. <laughs> uh, so tell us what you do at EliteProspects.com and what the site is exactly about. Sure. So I'm the director of North American Scouting and also a writer. Um, the fancy title basically means I watch everyone in North America as much as possible and the European players when I have time. Uh, I also built like the, the notes database, which like houses our game reports and tool grades and uh, all the stats and stuff like that. So it's a pretty diverse, entertaining job. Never boring, never short on tasks to do. Uh, I know um, I run a, a hockey showcase for, for kids trying to go to prep school. Um, so I know scouts and how much time and all that stuff, uh, how much takes out of your time and how to scout in person, uh, online, trying to get names and information, emailing coaches, all that stuff. So I can understand it's and ElitePropSix.com is probably one of the best websites for that stuff. So the amount of work you guys put in is awesome. Exactly. Um, I, I, I love EliteProspects.com. It's the reference whenever I'm trying to look at a prospect. Uh, there's so many analysts uh, on the prospect, and I'm, I'm in, I enjoy going on Elite Prospects. So that's why I was so excited to get Mitch Brown on our, on our podcast. So, Mitch, what, what exactly do you – I mean, how do you analyze players? Do you analyze them in person? Um, or do you, is it mostly online, video? I mean, I know you can't be everywhere at once. Yeah, so the majority of the viewings are obviously on the internet. Like, since last September 1st, I've watched 1,200 games, which I just did the math on that the other day, and that is kind of terrifying. And, like, the overwhelming majority of those were online. It's just impossible to see everyone, uh, which is why we have a great team. We have like 10 scouts now who are all in their own region and, and feeding information to us. But for me specifically, I think that live viewings have a ton of value, but that doesn't diminish the value of video viewings. Like you can, you get a better sense of a player's speed. You get a better sense of how hard they shoot. It's easier, it's easier to differentiate between players in live viewings than it is on video, but video gives you a, a unique perspective because you can slow down, rewind the game, figure out things that you missed and so on. So when I go out to a game, like when I was at the World Junior A Challenge, uh, the next day I watch the game again and see what I missed and then, you know, go further into detail about the player's stride. Because while I'm in person, I can figure out, okay, you know, this dude's going fast and his crossovers look really good. He's using his hips well to sink into his turns, but then I go back in video and I can better understand, you know, how much his body is rotating, if there are any tweaks that need to be made, and so on. And it's the same thing for every skill that they have. 
the way the way I see it with with scouting is that it's so, it's so complex, right? You could talk about a guy how he's good on his edge work or or whatever it is. What's the one, let's say, um, the one tangible, I guess, or maybe intangible? Maybe we'll give you give us give us two answers uh, that you see mostly in a top prospect as opposed to a guy who might not make it. Yeah. So the number one thing, and I think this is, I think this is pretty clear, is how they layer their skill. So there's very little that differentiates the, you know, the 10th guy in the draft from the 110th guy in the draft. It simply comes down to how they use the talents and how they use the skill. I think a good example is how players shoot the puck. Like if you look at a guy who can score 25, 30 goals in junior, you know, he can pull the puck back. He can sink some decent power into it and he can shoot, he can shoot the crap out of it. You know, he's in junior hockey for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's, it's good. It's good hockey. But when you get to the guys who are going to score that amount of goals in the NHL, then you start have to look, then you have to look what is around the shot. So can they shoot off their inside leg and their outside leg? Can they mask the release of their shot inside their stride? So what you see a lot of players do is they enter a glide and then they shift over to their preferred foot. It makes it obvious that the shot is coming. Yeah. And it's, the next part is like, you know, how do they disguise the puck on the on the blade of their stick from the goaltender? Do they have the dexterity to pull it around and shoot through players? Um, do they get open? And it's not just like, you know, Ovechkin moving at the top of the circle. It's how does Ovechkin get in between checks? Does he push off players at the exact right time to get open in the slot and so on? And so it gets really complex and you can do that with pretty much anything. Like I think shooting is probably the, is probably the simplest example. And you can talk about like hundreds of different little things that these players who score 30 in junior and then go on to be good NHL players versus the guys who score 30 in junior. And, you know, they can't hack it on the, in the bottom six of an AHL team do. I think we've seen that a lot in the Quebec junior major, Alex. So, so I've always had this question, but I've never, I could never get a clear answer because I've never actually asked to to a scout. But does the fact that the player plays in a certain league matters in his evaluation? So, for for instance, let's say in the CHL, uh, we all know that the OHL is arguably the best league in the CHL. Does it matter whether he produces a lot of points? in the OHL versus the WHL because we because over time I've noticed uh, the more successful NHL players come from the OHL and some of the WHL players well not all of them but some of them produce big numbers in the WHL and just cannot translate that much points in the NHL is it true or is it false well like what's uh, what's the exact uh, opinion on that I think there's definitely something to the OHL being the, the being the better of the three CHL leagues, but it was the highest scoring this past year. Um, scoring in the O was up by 0.9 goals per game this past season, which is crazy. So like when you look at these numbers that some of these draft eligible kids are putting up, you do have to be a little bit more cautious with them than you did have to be in previous years. I think when I watch the WHL and the O, they're probably the two closest of the three leagues in terms of, you know, how organized the teams are, how much structure they have, the talent at the lower end of the lineup. Uh, whereas the whereas the Q is a bit on the weaker end, especially with the bottom teams, the depth players just aren't as strong contributors, presumably because they're drawing from a smaller base of players. Um, 
statistically, I did a study on this about a year ago. And what really stood out to me was that in the QMJHL, there's less forechecking pressure. So you go from like in the O and dub, it's like 50% of the time a player tries to exit the puck out of the zone. There's someone on their hip, you know, hitting them with their stick or whatever. And the Q, it's only 40% of the time. So it's a lot easier to post really good transition numbers in the queue than it would be elsewhere. And it's the same for like rush defense. You know, someone who is breaking up a lot of plays in the queue doesn't have the same value as doing it in the dub or the O because the talent is is lower, especially at the lower end of the lineup. So what you mentioned about the queue is actually extremely accurate from everything I've seen, everything I've I've noticed uh from uh, running tournaments and 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 showcases, but the thing in Quebec is that we don't have hitting as early as possible. We we start hitting in your se- your second and third year Bantam, um, where in um, in Ontario and 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 in the western co- and in in the west the western part of Canada is that they start hitting in late Peewee, uh, in Peewee Major and stuff like that. So I think that's th- that's the difference between where you see. Q guys developing in terms of physically for checking, uh, getting down there. The like you said, you talked about transition. I think Quebec uses uh, Quebec players use transitions a little bit better, uh, but it's because there there's no fear of getting hit. There's no fear of of of, um, of physicality. And I don't know if I'm right. I could be way off on here on this one. I honestly think that's a really good point, and that's something that was brought up to me when I mentioned the study. If you when I mentioned the study a year ago. Like it has a huge factor, right? Because these are, when you look at decision-making in sport and you look at like, say, you know, how someone shoots at basketball, for example, it's, it's like grooved into how someone does something. It's habit and habits are incredibly tough to shake. And so even as you continue to step up the levels and you might be really good, these decisions that you made previously continue to impact your decision-making. Like skating is another really good example guys can get away with being poor mechanic, mechanic skaters at lower levels. And then they continue to have those same mechanical flaws and you can improve it during the off season. But when they get into a game situation and they have a four checker on them, those bad habits come out again. And it's really about trying to integrate and changing those decision-making patterns. I, what I noticed also, I mean, it's um, thank you for validating me. I feel amazing. I feel like a genius <laughs> now and I'm not even close to being a scout. Uh, I've been telling people this for years. Finally, Terry time is validated. Um, and now when you talk when you talk about the O and you talk about the dub, um, yeah, they're more physical and things like that. But what's the areas that might they might lack in as opposed to where the Quebec Junior Major lacks in? Uh, it, but maybe they're stronger in. Uh, I would say in general, the Q, like if you look at the top end teams, uh, there's just like like something that the Q teams have that you don't see a lot from the WHL teams is this creative, free flowing sense of offense. Um, and that's something that I, I really value highly. Like we look at what the Tampa Bay Lightning are doing right now by never having anyone in front of the net, having having the ability and the free flowing type offense, you know, move and play the game that you want to play is very valuable. Like I watch some of these lower ranked WHL teams and, you know, they're almost too structured and too regimented for the players that they have at their disposal. And that's something that we, I think needs to change. Like look at the Halifax Moosehead. They're, great team for obvious reasons they do so many things incredibly well and one of them is that they continually find ways to maximize the gifts of their players they do not minimize them in any way shape or form so um i've noticed that a lot of people 
are uh, taking into account the, the world juniors as a measurement to a player's true value. And I'm, and I keep telling them that's not a true instrument of measurement. I know a lot of players who've haven't done anything in the world juniors and been absolutely amazing in the uh, NHL. Uh, so would you say that the world juniors is an overrated tournament, like as much as fun as it is to watch, but would you say the, uh, the evaluation of them based on that tournament is overrated? Like some people will say, Oh, Cole Caulfield didn't do anything, uh, in the other uh, world juniors. So, so he must be a bust. So what would you say to people that say that? In that specific situation, they're crazy. In the other situation, in a more broader sense, also crazy. I definitely think that people overrate the value of international hockey, especially just in like a one tournament setting. There are so many variables, right? There's the travel factor. There's playing with new teammates. There's maybe your sleep schedule has changed a bit. The food that you're eating is different. The coaches are telling you different things. You know, now suddenly maybe you have more family members in your ear telling you to do certain things. There are just so many different factors involved. It's really tough to, um, it's really tough to weigh it too heavily. But I do think there's utility in looking specifically at skills, tools, and you know how close they might be in proximity. Uh, to the NHL compared to their peers. And I think there's a little bit of utility there. It's not something that I weigh very heavily. Like if I watch, I watched Cole Caulfield almost every weekend this past season. And to me, he looked like a future star and a world juniors is not going to change that. It's just too small of a sample size with too many confounding variables to weigh too heavily. Thank you, Mitch. Okay. <laughs> We're just getting just validated ma- back, back to back here. <laughs> <laughs> um on to the next uh subject so um uh, so some players in this upcoming draft uh who you think are overrated or don't think they will be able to transition into the nhl in the first rounds who do you think will be overrated or even underrated who are late in the first round who will be really successful in the nhl yeah, so I think I think we'll start with the underrated one. I think that's a I think that's a really good topic. The the guy who really stands out to me is Helio Grans. He's a Swedish defenseman. He's big. He's mobile, although an imperfect skater. I think a large part of it comes from like a lack of lower body strength. So the room to grow. He's already very mobile. Is very high with him. He is simply put a transition monster. Um, I mentioned this on a podcast yesterday where. There are plays where he just pulls in the F1 and then he manipulates the F2 and three with his eyes. And then he throws up some like crazy hook pass through layers straight into space for a teammate to skate into. He's one of the best transition players in the draft class and fixing the other ends of the ice are the key for him. But I really think there's a ton of value in his game. And it's a very similar story for Jacob Perot, who he's kind of gotten a bit of a rap of being a lazy, poor defensive player. Uh, he played on a team that abided by a no defense rule. So I think, you know, being the number one center on that team kind of kind of obscured some of his value that he showed as a 16-year-old. Uh, he has arguably the, the second or third best wrist shot in the draft class. He gets on the inside. He makes a lot of plays happen. And he really started using the threat of his shot to improve as a playmaker. And when I see a player add that kind of element to his game at this age, it speaks to me of a player who is going to continue to improve and can add more layers to their game, which is another reason why I'm really high on Maverick Bork, who went from like a net front 
two-touch finisher to one of the Q's most manipulative gravitational pull-type playmakers. He he bends the offense to his will, perhaps not with the most flash, but he's a really impressive player. It just comes down to improving the skating. To go from being the net front guy to the puck-dominant playmaker who's pushing, who's getting defenders on his back, pulling away, and then sending a no-look pass through layers to an open teammate is just truly astounding. You don't really see that happen. And now... For the overrated side of things, I mean, <laughs> we could spend hours on this. Did you guys see my draft rankings that came out today? Holy moly! I, I yeah. <laughs> I've seen them yet. <laughs> there, are, there are a ton of guys that I that are very highly thought of that I know drafted and even had quite low. I okay, think I gotta check it out now. Yeah, <laughs> I think the most the most obvious example is uh is Jake Neighbors, um, and I don't mean to critique any of these players personally or whatever um i just i'm very skeptical of of their games translating to the nhl in neighbors's case uh he's way more physically mature than the players around him and so he's basically a brick wall people skate towards him and they just like crumple over to the ice even if he doesn't see them coming and He's a very skilled backhand passer, which is a quite valuable thing when you're playing on your offside and in and, and, and the offensive zone. You can work that puck back across his body, you know, bait in the defender's stick and then throw a pass into the slot. But he's a straight line attacker. He's a powerful but not particularly fast skater. So there's questions about how much more he can improve his speed. Um, the way he handles the puck, it's way out in front of his body. He's constantly exposing it to the sticks and bodies of opposition players who can use their leverage to get underneath them. And there's just a ton of poor decision-making. Um, I acknowledge the value in his game and I can see why teams would be willing to take the gamble on him in the first. I mean, he's, he's a pretty easy bet, I guess, to say, Oh, you know, this guy could play on our third or fourth line, but even that I'm hard pressed to go for. And I think Ridley Gregg is another example, but I'm more sympathetic to the argument in his favor. <laughs> it won't neighbors won't be going to the Habs, but Ridley Gregg is a guy who I would think the Canadians have a lot of interest in. I mean, he's he's man, it's it's tough to think of words to describe him. It's just chaos watching him play. Like always attacking the middle, um being super aggressive, physical in people's faces. You know, if he if, if the goaltender stops his shot, he'll punch the goaltender in the face to tell him to not do whatever again. He's just wild out there. And there are a ton of flaws in his game. Like it, all those attacks again are straight line. He relies on one-on-one -on -one skill too much. Um, his skating has significant flaws. It doesn't consistently extend his strides. Um, it's, he's just really predictable. Like he does the same thing over and over again. It's like watching one of those junior kids who, you know, when they get the puck, they just start from the wide lane and try to Pavel Bray it into the front of the net. And it's so like, you know how fast you got to be to do that in the NHL? Like McDavid fast to do that in the NHL. And Ridley Gregg is probably a slightly below average skater. So there's going to have to be significant, significant skill development and growth. And as one of the youngest players in the draft class with resources at his disposal that very few players have, his father is a scout for the Philadelphia Flyers, he will have more opportunities than everyone else will. So, Mitch, um, which of the uh, 
top, let's say, 15 players that are projected to go top 15, do you think are not going to be good enough in the NHL? Uh, projected projected by who? Should we use Bob McKenzie's list? Okay, um, let's – yeah, let's use Bob McKenzie. Okay. Let's, let's, <laughs> yeah, I think the first one who stands out to me is, is Caden Gooley. I really like him. I like Caden Gooley a ton. Like, awesome player. He's always in someone's face. He's an amazing – he closes space really quickly. He's got the upside to be a positive transition player. And, well, the offense is limited. The Duke can shoot the hell out of the puck. It, it's it's really impressive, and he gets them on net. And in a in my fourteen game sample this year, he got seventy percent of his shots on net, and he was high high volume, very impressive. But I just think he's more limited in his game because of the offensive side of things. Like he only creates really with two plays, and that's you know teen up a shot on the power play and the handoff along the boards where he walks down and tries to curl it in front of the net. Um, and he's a good but not great handler. He tends to be a little bit panicky under pressure. Um, so I think he's probably more of a number four, in which case I would rather take one of the high upside forwards. I think when you look at um, Gooley and Schneider in particular, and Barron, I guess, but those are three guys who have sort of had their value inflated by this being a weak draft class for forwards, or for, for defensemen, sorry. Like, if, if it were a better year, we would see these guys be a bit lower on teams' lists than they are currently. And then I guess the third example is probably Hendrix Lapierre. Uh, I've never been too enamored with his game, but I can really see why people are. I mean, he, he's really good at using lane deception. So when he comes at guys, he's attacking them on arcs with crossovers, trying to pull them in one direction before he goes the other way. The issue is that he often defaults to the outside. And when you see him deep in the offensive zone, He's just trying to set up to find teammates from the perimeter. He's not really imposing his will to get on the inside. And he's quick enough and talented enough as a handler that he should be able to, you know, do what Maverick Bork does. And that's pull the puck through a defender and then cut off their hands with his hips and establish body positioning. But he doesn't. And with three concussions, it really makes you wonder, will he get any more predisposed to going inside? As someone who has had many concussions, I would be very, very, very uninterested in playing more in the middle of the ice. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. So can. I have a difficult time making that projection. I want to believe in him, and it would be an amazing story if he became a great NHL player. Full stop. It would be awesome, but I'm skeptical. <laughs> so, um, so the Habs are drafting at number sixteen. Um, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of names that we could say out there that might fall to him. I'm a I'm a Connor Zary guy. I think that if he falls there, I think they should be able to take him. But I doubt he'll be at, available at number sixteen. Uh, who name us a couple of players that you might feel could be available at number sixteen for the Habs or something that maybe they might have to reach up to get other than Lafreniere? I think that's an obvious, uh, the <laughs> obvious answer. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you might be surprised about where Connor Zary ends up in the draft. Most of the conversations I've had see him more on, see him more in the twenties. Of course, all it takes is one team to be like, you know, we got this guy number nine. Um, but I, I think he'll probably be available for the Canadians there. For me personally, there are three guys who stand out as as my, I guess, favorite options for 16. The first one is Maverick Bork for the reasons I uh, I laid out earlier. You know, manipulative playmaker, NHL-type goal scorer, dual threat attacker. Uh, the defensive game will come with time. He played a ton of minutes for not being the most well-conditioned player. Um, it'll get there. The second guy is uh, Brendan Brisson. Uh, the son of Pat Brisson, obviously. 
Uh, and we know the connection that Pat has with the Montreal Canadiens. So I think this is a pretty natural fit. Um, yeah. He plays he plays center. He can also play the wing perfectly fine. He has one of the draft's best fallback tools, and that is that he can really rip the one-timer. And he can take it like from outside of his back foot to outside of his front foot. He adjusts really well to the pass, and he's got a ton of wrist dexterity, and he can always sink into a shot real quick to pull it off. Strong playmaker really creative. He is not a Maverick Bork type manipulator. He puts himself in positions in the middle of the ice and then problem solve. So he's trying to stick handle and find options after he gets there rather than intentionally setting up plays to stack the odds in his favor. But that's more of a stylistic thing. I still think he could be a second line center just like Bork could be. And then the third one, I mentioned him as well earlier, is Helio Granz. He's a right shot defenseman. Okay. Obviously the high, high, high end transition upside. Like it's a, if it's five years down the line and we're talking, okay, who is the best defenseman from this draft class? I would not be surprised if it's Hellier Grons. That's how much I like him. The certainty with Drysdale and Sanderson are much higher. No doubt about that. But his ability to make plays in transition, the, the decision-making is questionable at times, but what he flashes is truly exceptional, and I don't think he's a high-risk guy. I think that because he's so valuable in transition already in the SHL as a teenager, that that's going to translate to the NHL. It might just be a number five. It might be a number two. But to me, that risk is worth having. It's, you know, it's not just a defensive thing. A lot of it is offense. He has this weird thing where he likes to get off the point and then he panics. He's like, what do I do now? He's staying along the boards. He's got a ton of space. He can make a play. He can drive the net. He can pass to a teammate. And instead, he feathers a wrister on goal. You're like, ah, oh, Grons, again, man, why'd you do that? You could be so much better than you are. And I think a team will I think a team will get that out of him. So more of like a uh, maybe a maturity thing, just, you know, getting, getting on the ice, playing with uh, more experienced guys, uh, becoming more mature, less mistakes kind of thing. But for the, when you're talking about raw talent and, 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 and a ceiling, you like him as a, a, with a high ceiling. Absolutely. Okay. I like that. So, so, so my question to you is, what are the what are the chances that Seth Jarvis and Dustin Mercer, or Dustin Mercer obviously are available at number sixteen? What are the odds? Oh, uh, so the some of my conversations and some of the conversations my colleagues have had have pointed to Seth Jarvis being a little bit lower in the minds of the NHL industry folk than your regular hockey draft Twitter bloke. So, and I think that's reflected in Bob McKenzie's list where he's at 18th. There is a chance. I would say that with Toronto picking one pick above Montreal, if Jarvis is available, there's probably not a chance that he goes to Montreal. But Jarvis would be, I mean, he's the ideal pick in my eyes for any pick after 11. He's just so good. Like, it's tough to really point at flaws. There are a few translatability things, right? But come on, you're getting a, a <laughs> player who can drive the middle, make plays under pressure, strong defensive player. He's on that massive upward development boom that you want to see from guys. Dual threat. Yeah, exceptional. And then Dawson Mercer, um, that's a tricky one to figure out. You know, I, I would like to think that there's a lot of interest in him in the NHL. He does a lot of really good things. He's so deceptive. Um, he can walk through anyone and he, he uses that really long stick too. Like it's crazy how he has so much control. He's just a really good player at manipulating the opposition and, you know, bending the ice in his favor. 
the issue is the skating. He's got real heavy boots out there sometimes. And it's a bit of a wonder if he'll be able to play that game without making significant tweaks to it in the NHL. I would say that at this point in time, they're more likely to have Mercer available to them than Jarvis, but it's, it's, it's razor, razor thin. So we learned that we learned a lot today. We learned, uh, I was validated that the Q Quebec hockey, (laughs) hockey Quebec needs to start hitting earlier. And Alex, you were validated for, what was it again? I'm forgetting. Yeah. The world juniors, how they're uh, overrated. The world juniors are world juniors are a great tournament. I love the tournament. One of the best tournaments yeah. in sports, probably. But yeah, there's a lot of overhyping when you see somebody in, in, in a small sample like the World Juniors, which I think that, you're, that was that was your point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Mitch, I appreciate you taking the time, man. You validated me and Alex. We feel great. Uh, we're gonna go to we're gonna sleep like babies tonight for sure. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, you, you know, where can everybody reach you? Uh, what's new with you? What's going on? So you can follow me at Mitch L Brown on twitter.com, which is the greatest internet on the face of, which is the greatest place on the face of the internet. Yes, it is. Um, the second best place is elite prospects or EP ringside. I should probably switch those around, but we got tons <laughs> of great articles coming out. We got draft guys stuff. I personally have a couple of really interesting pieces. I have an article comparing who improved the most and I have articles on Jan Meshack and Ridley Gregg and Hellier Grons and so on. Um, and you, you should definitely check out my draft ranking and then go on twitter.com. Tell me I'm an idiot. It'll be great. We'll all have a great time. So I'm going to I'm gonna so message you after my draft because I'm in a keeper league where we play with a cap. You're able to keep as many players as you want as long as you're with, under the cap. And I, I'm, my problem is is that I, I draft awful. Like I'm not really a prospects guy. I've started getting into it the last couple of years because of the league. Uh, just to give you an example, I haven't made the playoffs and I still have McDavid, Marner, Matthews, Stamkos. Like I have those guys and I haven't made the playoffs. So just to say, so the rest of my team is pretty garbage. So maybe I'm going to start reading your articles more often, Mitch. <laughs> wow, Terry. Wow. Oh, it's brutal. man. You have no, injuries too. They fuck me. Like there's a lot of things that go on here. It's like, it's very frustrating to me. I've tanked so many times that I've even, I even have Nolan Patrick. He's on my bench. Uh, well, he's on, he's on the IR. I mean, my team is, is stacked and I still can't get any W's. It makes no freaking sense. I can't figure it out. Whatever. It is what it is. Um, so, like, again, Mitch, I appreciate you taking the time. Alex, as usual, this episode is brought to you by Chetty's Hot Sauce. Visit Chetty'sHotSauce.ca. Use Hot Sauce 25 for 25% off on the entire website. Uh, that was Weekly Sauce. Peace.